Have you all heard of the Babylon Bee? Yeah, pretty funny stuff. They, it's a satirical Christian news outlet. They publish a lot of really funny stories. They can be political. It can be theological. I ran across one that I found very funny. This is the title of this news article. Remember, this is satire. This is the title. Reformed pastor completes brief 47-year-long sermon series in the book of Romans. As I read, this is what the article said. Wrapping up his sermon series that began during the Vietnam War, Minister Michael L. Foster preached the final sermon in his brief 47-year-long study on the book of Romans. The last message was a short, breezy, one-hour exposition of Romans 1627d, which reads, Amen. Wow. I don't think we have 46 years left in the book of Philippians. Amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. Now, I haven't gone through Romans yet, so I'm promising nothing. Well, this morning we are in Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Let's go ahead and open there together. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. And as was indicated by the songs and indicated by the title of this morning's sermon, we're studying once again the understanding of the peace of knowing Christ. Let's go ahead and read our passage together. Philippians 4, 8 through 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellence, if there is any excellence, excuse me, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So this is our passage this morning, and as we see in verse 9, this topic of peace comes up once again. Now, I want to locate this sermon in the context of our previous two sermons. So turn with me, excuse me, look at verse 6, Philippians 4, 6. And in this passage, which we dealt with two weeks ago, the Apostle Paul gives us commandments in this verse in order to attain peace. How do we attain peace? How do we have peace with God? How do we have peace in light of the difficult circumstances of life? Well, Paul tells us in verse 6, to pray, to pray with thanksgiving. The way we combat our anxiety, the way we combat distress in this world is by means of prayer. That's what Philippians 4, 6 said. And if we follow 4, 6, if we do what God tells us to do in Philippians 4, 6, Philippians 4, 7 is the result. The result is, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, 
will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So we have a command in verse 6, and we have a promise in verse 7. The way we attain the promise, what we have to do to lay hold to this promise that God gives us in 4-7, is we have to pray. We have to pray with thanksgiving. That's the idea of verses 6 and 7. Now, as we go to verses 8 and 9, there's a similar idea expressed. There's a promise at the end of verse 9. The promise is this, and the God of peace will be with you. That's what we're seeking. How do we seek that? In verse 6, the way we seek the peace of God is by means of prayer. But in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us a different instruction. And the instruction that he gives us in this morning's passages is that we need to live lives of holiness. So two weeks ago, we studied prayer, and the way we attain prayer, as we studied last week, excuse me, the way we attain the promise of God is by means of prayer. The way we attain God's peace is by means of prayer. And this week, we're going to see that the way we have peace, the way we have the peace of God in our lives, is by means of holiness. So that's the large idea. That's the main idea that we're going to tackle and investigate this morning. And to do so, I'd like to give you four different points. The first point is this. Holiness, this concept that we're exploring together, involves morality. Holiness involves morality. I get this from verse 8. Paul lists for us here a number of different virtues. Truth. Honor, justice, purity, loveliness, commendability, excellency, and anything worthy of praise. Paul tells us that these are the attributes, these are the virtues, that we as Christians need to seek after. Now I want us to notice, though, a larger context here. Notice how Paul introduces each of these virtues. You see this whatever is, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just. And then he says, if there is any excellency, if there is anything worthy of praise. What Paul is doing here is he is broadening the Christian's horizon to see God, to see his kindness in all of life. As Christians, we are called to expand our understanding of God into the whole world. Paul is saying here, whatever it is that models God, that is what we are to seek after in life. And commentators often point out that verse 8 reads like, verse 8 reads like an early understanding of virtues that you find among non-Christian writers. So in the first century, if you were to go to a first century bookstore and you were to pull off the shelf, How to Live Your Life, let's say that's the title of the book, and the author is a non-Christian, let's say he is a Stoic, a form of early philosophy in the ancient world. This Stoic, if you were to open up their book on virtues, 
you were to turn to this chapter, what you would see is verse 8. You would see this author talking about virtues like truth, justice, honor. What Paul does in verse 8 is he's drawing on this larger intellectual context in the first century. And what he is saying is that the virtues that the non-Christian upholds, those virtues are true. And those virtues, moreover, are a revelation of God's character. God's truth in this world stretches to the entire cosmos. Even the non-Christian recognizes goodness, truth, and beauty. If you had a non-Christian reading verse 8, they would applaud Paul. Now, as we're going to see in verse 9, Paul has more to say about this. But it is important for us to recognize that as Christians, all truth is God's truth. This is what one early theologian said. His name is Justin Martyr. He said this, The truth which men in all lands have rightly spoken of belongs to us. The us here is Christians. God's truth is inescapable. All people, whether they know it, whether they don't know it, whether they confess it, whether they don't confess it, all people recognize God's truth. All people. This is why we can go out in faith believing that God will answer our prayers in evangelism is because God's witness is everywhere. God's witness goes beyond our Christian culture here at church. All people recognize to varying levels of degree what goodness, truth, and beauty are. And goodness, truth, and beauty, as Paul specifies here, are boiled down to these certain virtues. Let's look at these virtues together. The first virtue is truth. Whatever is true, truth is essential. Absolutely essential. Our whole lives need to be a pursuit of the truth. The truth you cannot manipulate, no matter how much money you have, no matter the family that you're born into, no matter the influence that you have. Truth stands above you and outside of you. We cannot conform truth to us. It is our judge. It stands above us. And we accept it for our salvation. We reject it for our doom. Truth is essential. Being an honest person. Having integrity. Speaking honestly. Telling the truth. This is an essential virtue of holiness. Honor. Whatever is honorable. You think of a person who stands up for the truth. You think of a person who stands up for the truth even when it costs them something. You think of the honor that we give this person. Someone who is honorable is worthy of respect. Respect you cannot buy. You have to earn that. You, don't, you cannot ask someone to respect you and therefore they do it. Honor is something that you have to achieve by standing for the truth. Just. Justice. 
Justice refers to the idea of not treating people with prejudice or partiality, favoritism, not treating this person well because they have money or status or something that you want, and not treating this person badly because of their status, their color, or anything like that. Being just is treating people with equity and kindness and love, fairness. Purity. What sin does is it taints us. It makes us dirty. Purity should be the pursuit of Christians to live pure lives, unstained from sin. Loveliness. The Christian's life should be attractive. Holiness means living a life that other people find attractive. Hey, what is it about you that makes you live that way? Having a spirit and an air of loveliness. Commendability. This is similar to honor. People commend your life. Whether they agree with it or not, you live a life that is commendable to others. Excellence. This word refers to moral excellence. If holiness is defined well in this passage, this term, excellence, does a good job of it. Moral excellence is what Christians seek after. And then lastly, Paul says, anything worthy of praise. Our lives need to be in constant pursuit of things that are commendable, honorable, worthy of praise. And what holiness is, holiness involves verse 8. Holiness is about truthfulness. Do you tell the truth? Justice. Are you fair? Do you live an honorable life? Do you pursue moral excellence? Is your life morally excellent? This is what holiness is about. Now, this is not all that holiness is about. Verse 9 is key here. But it is important to emphasize that the way we live matters. Our honesty, our integrity, how we are known in the community, that matters. As Christians, it matters how we live our lives. Yes, grace is free. Yes, the gift of salvation is a gift. Amen. But grace comes with its demands on your life. And as Christians, we're not free to live any old way. If you confess the name of Christ, you must pursue moral excellence. You must pursue morality. Now, jumping to verse 9. While holiness includes morality, it is more than that. Holiness also entails... This is my second point. The gospel. Holiness involves morality, but it entails more than that. Holiness is not less than moral living, but it is more than moral living. And what holiness is, a good definition, is morality plus the gospel. Or in other words, gospel-centered morality. Notice what Paul says in verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Now, what is it, we want to ask a question of this passage, what is it that the Philippians have learned, have received, have heard, 
and seen in Paul. What is it? Turn with me to Philippians 3.8. Philippians 3.8. Paul says this. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. If you were to boil that thought down to a single term, that term is the gospel. Jesus is of such value to us as Christians that he is worth losing everything for. That's how I want us to understand Philippians 4.9. That is the way I want us to understand what it is that the Philippians have learned and received and heard and seen in Paul. What they've learned, received, and heard and seen in him is the gospel. So what I want to do is I want us to take these virtues in verse 8, truth, justice, purity, and run them through this grid of Paul's life. Holiness is verse 8 plus verse 9. It is morality plus the gospel. And it is so critical that we maintain both. A gospel without morality, a gospel that makes no demands on your life, is not a true gospel. As I've said, the gospel is free, but it makes it dem its demands on our lives. And morality without the gospel is a work salvation. It is an endless pursuit of a goal you will never achieve. Holiness is neither of those. Holiness is both. Holiness is a gospel-centered morality. And holiness makes its demands on our lives. It requires a response from you. And this is my third point. Holiness requires a response. We are not saved by moral living, but moral living is the expression of the gospel in our lives. Godliness matters. You cannot live any old way as a Christian. Paul gives us two commands here. Looking at verse 8. Do you see the command at the end of verse 8? What is the command? It is think about. That's what Paul is saying to us. Think about these things. Now this word think about, it's defined like this. To give careful thought to a matter. Think about, consider, ponder. Let one's mind dwell on. You think of that statue called the thinker. It's a man who's sitting on a rock and he has his chin on his fist like this. And he is lost in thought. That's the type of response that Paul is calling us towards here regarding these virtues. These virtues of justice, truth, goodness, loveliness. Paul is calling us to ponder them. 
not just think about. Thoughtlessness, a lack of reflection, is a spiritual problem. Thoughtlessness is a spiritual problem. And this is not just a matter of being intelligent. Many intelligent people fail to reflect adequately on the issues of life. Thoughtlessness is a spiritual problem. It's not a matter of the intellect. I was reading a story recently about a, a Christian pediatric oncologist, a female doctor who saw children who have cancer. And in her career, she saw many children die. In the first instance in which she ran into this situation, there was a young woman who was under her care who died. She was very troubled by seeing this. And so she asked her medical supervisor how to deal with these thoughts and feelings, these thoughts of depression and tremendous discouragement and despair. And she was struck by her supervisor's response. This is what he said. Her supervisor responded that she shouldn't think about those feelings, but instead she should simply busy herself and continue working hard. That's a thoughtlessness. That is a spiritual problem. And what drives us towards thoughtlessness what drives us away from thinking hard about important matters is the difficulty that arises when we do think about those things. We tend towards thoughtlessness. We tend to not think about our state because of the trouble that arises in our minds when we do. We oftentimes realize that there are problems in our life. And it's much easier to deal with problems by ignoring them, by tackling them head on. And what Paul says here is that as Christians, part of the requirement for holiness is to think about our lives. To think about, am I an honest person? Do I tell the truth? How can I be more honest? Am I fair? Do I treat people with favoritism or with prejudice? Or do I treat them equitably and kindly? Do I live a pure life? Are my thoughts pure? Is my life pure? Do I live a life that is lovely, that other people want to model? Do I pursue moral excellence? How can I live a more morally beautiful life? These are the types of questions that Paul is calling us to reflect on. Paul is calling us away from thoughtlessness. Dear friends, you must consider your life. You must think about your life. You must think about the virtues that you have or you do not have. And also, you must live them out. Look at verse 9. 
There's another command here Paul gives. What is that command? The command is to practice these things. Whenever I evangelize, whenever I have opportunities to share the gospel, which I don't do often enough, but whenever I have opportunities, my approach usually goes something like this. I will start with the question of, do you believe in God? A very general question. And with each question, I'll become more specific. So after this general question of, do you believe in God? I'll ask the question, well, do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is God's son who came, lived, died, rose from the dead for your sins? Do you believe that? And if they answer yes to that question, I have a follow-up question. And that follow-up question is this. Do you live a life that glorifies God? Do you live a life that glorifies God? I find that when I ask this question, this is the response that I hear. On numerous occasions, this is what people say. I try. I try. There was some laughing. I think the laughing is related to they didn't answer my question. My question was, do you, right, do you live a life that glorifies God? Now, in that larger question, there is the assumption of effort, but I'm not asking an effort question. I'm asking a question, the question, do you? Not do you try, but more than that, do you actually do it? Now, is that question valid, or am I asking too much of, of people? Is that a valid question to ask people? Not just do you try. But do you? Do you actually execute on living for God? Scripture is the authority. I want us to see what Paul says. Paul does not say, try these things. Try to live them out. Paul takes it a step above that. If you have a King James, it so beautifully says, do. The word here is more than effort. The word here rises to the level of accomplishment and doing, practicing. Practicing is more than trying. Practicing is actually executing on what it is that you're attempting to do. Accomplish and do is even high, higher than that. What holiness is, is a thinking about moral virtues. It is a thinking about dwelling on, contemplating a gospel-centered morality. But it is more than that. Holiness is the actual doing of these virtues. It's the carrying out of these matters. And so I leave you with these questions, dear friend. Do you live a life that glorifies God? Do you live a life that glorifies God? Are you honest? Do you live an honorable life? Are you just? Are you kind? 
you practice these matters? Do you execute them? What holiness does is it demands, God demands that we do these matters. God demands a response from you. God wants your life to be changed, not just in the realm of effort. That is wonderful. Try with all your might, but also do. Also practice. Make it your life's pursuit to be a person of integrity, a person of honesty, of equity and justice. Your whole life, this is the pursuit of Christianity is the modeling of these virtues. Holiness demands, it requires something of you. It demands that you think about, that you ponder, and that you do. And then last, last point. Holiness results in God's presence. Holiness results in God's presence. There is tremendous sacrifice in following Jesus. Amen? There is tremendous sacrifice. Over and over and over again, the Bible says to count the cost. To take up your cross. The Bible says that those who live a godly life will be persecuted. To be a Christian is to suffer difficulty. It is to undergo mistreatment from others based upon your Christian confession. There is great cost in following Jesus. But dear friends, there is more benefit. What we lose for his name, Jesus makes up for. The, fall, the cost of following Jesus is less than the benefit of doing it. The benefit of following Christ is infinitely better than the cost. It will cost you. It will. But it's foolish not to pursue it. Because the benefit of knowing Jesus, the blessings that we receive because of godliness, far outweigh the costs that come with that. And we see that here. Look down at the bottom of the passage. We're going to end with the promise. And the God of peace will be with you. Once again, this verse is so similar to verse 7. Verse 7 says, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds. There we have the, the word and, and we have the word will. Verse 7 does not say, and the peace of God might guard your hearts. Verse 7 is a promise. God says that he will do this. And then look at verse 9. And the peace of God will be with you. This is a promise. It's not a might. It's not a may. And what Paul is teaching here is that the way to have this promise, the way to have the God of peace being with you, is by means of holiness. This phrase, God of peace, it can mean two different things. I take them as compatible. The God of peace 
refers to God's inner character. God is an infinite being. He is infinitely lovely. He is infinitely true. He is infinitely good. And within his inner life, he has infinite peace. God never has a bad day. You come home at the end of the day, your spouse asks you, well, how was your day, honey? It was a rough day. God doesn't say that. God's always doing tremendous. He has this inner state of shalom. In the Old Testament, you have this word for peace, and this word for peace refers to well-being. God is always doing well. This is his character. And because he's so lovely and so nice and so kind, he gives gifts to mankind. He gives gifts to you and me. And one of those gifts that God gives us is peace. So God has this peace in his inner life, and God gives the gift of peace. This is one of the blessings of following Christ. And I want you to notice what it says of him. It says that he will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. When we go through struggle, when we go through trial, which happens all the time, we are all struggling. When you go through trial and difficulty, what makes a tremendous difference is having the companionship and presence of someone else. As I've mentioned a number of times, while my wife and I, while our family was in Dallas, we had some very difficult times. Most difficult was when my wife was in her third trimester with our third son, and she was having many seizures. I've mentioned this before. Her being seven to eight months pregnant, falling on her face. And the trauma and the difficulty of that. And sometimes at the end of the day, after the kids were in bed, my wife would just spend time together and pray and embrace. And during that time of difficulty, there was tremendous peace that was experienced both between my wife and I because of each other's presence. We were with one another through the difficulty. It did not make the situation go away, but it brought a sweetness of fellowship that was invaluable. Just the personal presence of someone who cares can and does make a tremendous impact in your life in the difficulties and anxiety. Now, my wife is a tremendous woman, but God is so much better. You take the peace that I received in this situation from my wife's presence. You take that and you times it by infinity. That is the value of the God of peace being with you. In your struggles, in your anxiety, what you need most is the God of peace being with you. 
And dear friends, we have a promise here. This is a promise. We're going to hold on to this promise. God says it, therefore we can claim it. In your difficulty and trial, in the various forms of anxiety that you have, in the various areas that you experience disruption and turmoil, God says he will be with you. And this isn't just any old God. This is the God of peace. The God of infinite peace. That he offers it to you free. And our response. The way we attain it. The way you attain it. The way you have peace with God in this life. The way you heal the various divisions in your life. Whether it's in your own heart. Whether it's in your family. Whether it's in your marriage whether it's in this church the way the Bible instructs us to deal with this is through holiness living a life of truthfulness justice and equity there is great difficulty in living a, a holy life dear friends but this promise is far better God of peace promises to be with you and your response is to live a holy life to live a life of gospel centered morality Father we thank you for your word thank you that you say that you will be, be with us I pray for the dear Christian who struggles Lord, I pray that you would encourage the faint-hearted. I pray that they would lay hold to your word here, this promise, and that they would trust it more than their very own lives, that this promise and the God of peace will be with them, will be more real to them than their own life. Father, all that we have in this life is your promises. All else is sinking sand. Father, produce in us holiness. Produce in us not just a trying to live for you, but an actual doing. We pray that we would ponder moral excellency, that we would pursue it, and that we would do it. Father, produce this in our lives, not because we can somehow earn favor with you based upon how we live, but because of your grace towards us in the person and work of Christ. Father, we thank you for your mercy and grace. We pray for your power and encouragement for the saints. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.